House Ways and Means Committee Chairman Al Ullman says he has no problem with Carter tax proposals, but AFL-CIO may fight some of the proposals. Board of New York City's Health and Hospitals Corporation meets tomorrow to decide whether to fire Dr. John Holloman, who heads the corporation. Nassau County Police chased on valuable loot taken from pharmacy in East Meadow. And the weather, we'll check that. Clearing and seasonably cold tonight, low in the upper 20s. Partly sunny and breezy tomorrow, high in the upper 30s. In partly cloudy mid-Manhattan, it's now 31 degrees, minus 1 Celsius. Stay tuned for Gene Shepard. He's coming up. I'm John Wingate. WOR News Time, 915. here in my hand, a very rare objet d'art. I, I mean, it's not necessarily an objet d'art. Well, it could be called that, I suppose. But it is a genuine 1923 WOR microphone. In fact, it's the kind of microphone that was used on WOR when it went on the air. Which was, when was that? 1920? 1920? Great Scott. 22. W.O.R. went on the air in 1922. Yeah, February 22nd, 1922, W.O.R. went on the air. Why we're, per- we're, we're persistent. Are we? <laughs> we're still hanging in there. Uh, that is the station, 1922. And uh, this was a type of microphone used on W.O.R. at that time. It is a double-button carbon mic. And it weighs, uh, you know, the kind that had the uh, ring uh, mounting. You know, you've seen probably pictures of the of the uh, microphones at that time. You, once in a while, they show. Uh, you'll see pictures, uh, you know, from the past, and it shows Al Jolson uh, recording or something, and he's got the, this microphone, and the microphone is mounted on springs. It has uh, four springs that that uh, hold it uh, into this ring. It's a big ring that goes around it on a stand or maybe a tall stand that sat down on the ground there, and the guy's singing to this thing. And it's really a, a variation of the kind of microphone that is actually today in your telephone. Uh, your telephone has a thing called a single-button carbon mic, or an F1 mic. It's often referred to by us cognoscenti. The machine influences man. Well, this is true. I think man is a different man than he is, you know, today, than he was, let's say, in 1891. I think he's been profoundly influenced by, let's say, the automobile and a pencil sharpener and uh, various other great things in our lives. And I know I know one guy that was totally influenced by a uh, blender. 
You know what a blender is? You know those things where you put the ice and all that jazz in? Well, uh, he gave his wife a blender for Christmas one year. It's been four years now. Four hectic, hellish years. And uh, he, <laughs> he gave his wife a blender. Now, he was, he was a very straight guy up to that point. And uh, he was, you know how on, before Christmas they always have these TV ads. Every year there's a new big gift like the electric carving knife, this big one year. Well, this was the blender year. Do you remember the year when they had the broiler year, the electric broiler year? Every every third TV commercial was about a broiler where you didn't show a ham in there cooking away there and you could do all this stuff with it. I don't know whoever all those broilers are now. I never see them in the houses anymore, but they, they sold millions. And uh, anyway, he bought this blender. So uh, one night he was sitting there. And uh, along with the blender came a like a recipe book on groovy stuff you could do with a blender. Well, up to this point, he figured what you'd made with a blender, you know, you just uh, you just uh, you know blend stuff. You you because uh, they never show you doing this kind of stuff on TV. You know, the kind of stuff that's really in the uh, in the book. They always show them on TV. You know, putting uh, carrots and tomatoes and stuff in there, making fruit juice and jazz like that. See, so uh, that's what he thought the blender did. He was innocent, so he. Uh, He's reading this thing. He says, hey, look, look at this here. He says, uh, hey, Marge, do you, what, what is this? Uh, did you ever hear of a drink called a Dakiri? And she says, no. He says, well, it says you can make a drink called a Dakiri here with this thing. Uh, it says a frozen Dakiri. So, you know, I think I'm going to try some of that. And he reads this thing, and it's just, uh, you need a little rum. He says, we don't have nothing. We have any rum around here or anything? She says, no, heavens no. He said, well, uh, I'm going to go down to the store. I'm going to try one of them Dakiris. And so he went down to the liquor store, and he bought himself some rum. And, of course, they had ice cubes and all that stuff, sugar. And so he put this stuff all into the blender. Bah! You know, he, goes, bah! he says, look at it. It's chopping up the ice. Bah! Yeah! And he had this pot full of Dakiri now, see, which is what he called the Dakiri. So... He, he poured it into this glass, and it's the little pile of ice, see? Very innocent-looking thing. And you were supposed to drink it, according to the picture, with the straws. You know how they show them with the little short straws? So he didn't have any of those little short straws, but he had some real big long straws. So he cut a lot of little straws in half, and he stuck it in there, and he says, Hey, Marge, try this. And so she sipped it. Well, that's not bad. Well, one thing led to the next. And his hobby became making dakiris, as he called them. And every night when he would get home from work, he would play with the blender and make dakiris. He tried all kinds of dakiris. He had the banana dakiri. He had a coconut dakiri. He had a peach brandy dakiri. And he had many types of dakiris. Well, he got so interested in his hobby that he kind of stopped going to work. He would stay home and make dakiris. Well... I don't have to tell you what finally happened to him. I better not, because it really did. In fact, he stopped even putting ice in his dakiris after a while and didn't even mess around with the blender. He used to just go home and, you know, take out the bottle of gin, and the, he'd begin to experiment. First it was rum, you know, with the dakiris, and then he went into the peach brandy. Then he began with the Benedictine. Then he discovered bourbon. After bourbon, it was one short hop to rye. And then he, uh, you know, he played around a bit with vodka, all the while experimenting. He's all experimenting all the while, making notes and one thing to another. Then he, he went from uh, from rye to uh, vodka. Then he began with gin. And after that, well, it was a very short hop to that door front. <laughs>
down on Sixth Avenue, where you can still see him to these, you know, one of these days, you can, you probably run into him yourself. You'll see him in the doorway down there. His one shoe is usually off. And he's sitting there. He looks like he sprung a leak, and he's got a bottle of his 33-cent-a-gallon wine in his, in his claws. And he looks 100 years old, at least. And it all started because of that blender. So man is influenced by machine. I'll concede that. He made the Kiri's. Don't you know what is it, a Dakiri, friend? Well, it's a, it's a Dakiri, that's all I can say. Now, I'm using his terminology. And by the way, he always felt all through his life that if he pronounced it badly, somehow it wasn't doing the real thing to him. You know? Yeah, if you make a joke about the thing that's slowly rotting your liver, you pretend that it isn't doing it. Like the guys that come in and say, give me a martini." Kind of makes it like a fun thing. You've heard that, haven't you, Tony? The little martini there? Well, actually, what he's getting is a big slug of generoni. That's what he's doing. And I think that's one of the reasons why we apply innocent-sounding names to lethal things. It takes the onus off them. <laughs> really true. <laughs> Somehow a pink lady can't do much to you, can it, friends? Well, I, I know one guy that threw up for... One solid week after one fantastic night with pink ladies. Innocent drink. <laughs> you know, the Cognoscenti is a group of the mafia that never made it. Uh, yes, you know that uh, we always hear about the successful mafia, but you know, back in the 1880s, a group was formed called the Cognoscenti Avantigardis. And uh, they uh, they had a hell of a time. They tried to, you know, hold up stuff and rob trains and stuff. All wound up in jail. They got their heads beat in. And they just didn't make it. And uh, for us cognoscenti, this... Uh, <laughs> watch the letters come out on that one. <laughs> yes, indeed. You know, uh, the, the, uh, the old traditional uh, uh, signature of the ancient mafia uh, was the black hand... When you came home and there was a black hand on your apartment door, you just better get yourself a tin suit and run like hell. But uh, the uh, signature of the cognoscenti was a was the black pinky print of a of a foot, and nobody could identify it. It just looked like a little ink blot, and so that's another thing that caused them to not make it. You got to have an under, a, a really identifiable symbol. If you have something that nobody knows what the hell, what the, what's that? Uh, well, who spilled the ink on the door there? And uh, that's no good. You want people to say, ah, the black hand, great scotto, and run, you know? And somebody hollers, correcto. Well, what co that's one of my favorite commercials, the one where the girl says, correcto. What commercial is that? Correcto. And he says, oh, wow, this is delicious. And she says, no, not delicious. It is delicioso. What commercial is that? That's a contemporary dynamic, useless trivia. Well, all trivia is useless by nature, by definition. But then, nevertheless, this is a, a 1923 WOR microphone, and it's a beauty. Must weigh about two pounds. Yeah, it's a it's a lot of a lot of metal there. Of course, the reason they made him so heavy was that uh, to prevent vibration. Correct them all. Indeed, them all. Uh, we don't worry about that kind of stuff now on contemporary radio. This microphone, for example, that we're using here right now uh, came with a Sears Roebuck tape recorder. 
And uh, it was a gift that one of the ladies gave to one of the managers of the station here, and we just ripped the microphone off, and now we're using it. And it's not bad, actually. Of course, it picks up every squeak, every sound, and we don't worry about that. Listen. <clears throat> okay. Did, <laughs> did that come across? It did. Good. Well, no problem. But this is, this is a nice microphone here, and uh, I would love to hook this thing up. Do you think we could do that? Do you think we could do it, Ern? Not tonight, of course. But some night, what we'll do is hook this thing up and listen to it and see what it really sounds like. Because it's in working condition. And uh, it has little carbon granules in it. Uh, for those of you who know about carbon mics, I don't have to tell you. But for those of you who don't know about carbon mics, you couldn't care less, right? And uh, it's a beautiful uh, old piece of gear. And let's see what it says on it. Uh, it says, uh, Western Electric, made in USA. Model 600M or something like that that has a patent there. Oh, by George, it was patented by Don Amici, 1812, it says. So, uh, huh, heaven's sakes. No wonder he, he could afford to retire from the business. But uh, nevertheless, <laughs> I'm sorry, Herb. But, I mean, you should be used to this. You worked in college radio. This is typical of college radio humor, isn't it? <laughs> no, it isn't. That's true. <laughs> oh, it couldn't be worse. No way. But uh, nevertheless, this is a nice microphone. It's beautiful. And uh, I'd like to ask a, a, a public service question of you out there. If there's anybody out there who has somewhere around, any uh, old ham type or something, who has a ring microphone stand, I would sure love to hear from you. I really would. If if you have a ring microphone stand, a ring is the kind you know with a big ring, just the just the stand. Now, obviously, uh, there were millions of those stands made. In fact, they were made to, to fairly recently. Uh, millions of those stands made, but I I don't have one. And uh, offhand, I don't know where to get one. And if you have an old ring microphone stand, a uh, preferably desk model. Uh, if you have an old ring microphone stand, please get in touch with me. I'd love to have, uh, you know, uh, have the information that you may have one around. Without a microphone, they're useless. I can point that out to you. <laughs> and even with a microphone, they're damn near useless. But uh, nevertheless, I would like to have a stand for this. Incidentally, speaking of that, uh, I, uh, that's, that's my particular hang-up. I, I dig old electrical equipment which uh, most of which has no value whatsoever. In fact, takes up a lot of space, and I've, there's nothing gathers dust quicker than old electrical equipment. Have you noticed that? Dust. Has, uh, I, I wonder how many of you know that cockroaches like to eat transformers. They do. They really do, because uh, the transformers contain uh, some kind of uh, wax or uh, lacquer or something. Oh, yeah, you shake an old transformer and some big old daddy cockroaches will come flying out. Been living in there, you know, since Marconi turned the thing off for the last time. Uh, did I ever tell you about the time I was present when a radio station blew right up? I mean, literally blew up. The transmitter blew up. I was the transmitter engineer, if you want to know. <laughs> I was a cool 17, and I had, I had, you know, I just got my first phone, and I, I was playing around. I was working this summer, and I was, you know, I was doing all this stuff, and, and uh, I was sitting in the control room, and right directly behind me was the transmitter. It's a 250-watt, curious, a 250-watt Western Electric, too. Uh, yeah, it was a good transmitter. And uh, all of a sudden, uh, wow. Uh, there was a there, there was this thunk, and uh, anybody who knows anything about the uh, bad uh, bad news sounds 
in the electrical world know when you hear the something that goes <laughs> stuff is shaking the bits there and you can feel it and you know the overload relay like many overload relays wasn't working it didn't kick out and uh, holy smokes I turned around there and the whole uh, room the atmosphere was filled with uh, with ozone and uh, blue light and uh, flames and all kinds of stuff. Well, now, when you have a transmitter, like, you don't run over and just pull the cord out. Uh, so I threw all available switches, including all the microphones, on in all the studios in an attempt to turn it off. <laughs> finally, finally, I, I, it was still standing in the corner jiggling, and the only thing I could think to do was I reached down, and we had a great big ashtray, you know, the kind that sits down on the ground with the round bottom, the tipping time kind. I grabbed the ashtray and had a weight on the bottom, and I just hit the bottom of the transmitter. Ka-tunk! And the overload relay kicked out, and everything stopped, and, and I says, oh, my God. I, do, I hesitate to... Uh, I, well, actually, I don't suppose I should. Uh, uh, the statute of limitations has disappeared now. I mean, it's, it's been more than seven years. But the reason that, the, that it blew up and later investigation by me and the chief engineer was a guy named Heine. Uh, me and Heine went in the back there and took off the grill to figure out what happened. And it turns out that one of the announcers had put his lunch. Uh, that's a fact. I'm telling you the absolute truth. One of the announcers had stuck his... <laughs> and the, the, he, uh, because they used to put stuff in the back of the transmitter, you know. So the, he stuck his lunch on the second shelf, which incidentally was directly over the power supply. Well, the heat... Uh, of this, and, and uh, he he had these sandwiches, terrible sandwiches. Anybody that makes sandwiches out of mayonnaise and ground up dill pickles uh, deserves to be fired, which he was. But he had these mayonnaise dill pickle sandwiches on uh, white bread. Uh, the heat had melted the mayonnaise. The mayonnaise dripped down and went right into our rectifiers. This is WOR New York. But uh, nevertheless, I, I, another time, if you want to hear another. Uh, great transmitter story. Another time uh, I saw a transmitter go up like a Roman candle at an Irish picnic. It was fantastic. Whoo-wee! I mean, it went all over the wall and it was wild. Uh, yeah, overload relays were flying out and running around a room, you know, and women and children were leaping for their lifeboats and it was fantastic and explosions going on. And, it, and, and while this was all happening, in the next room in the studio, there was a group of uh, of Baptist choir singers who were singing Bringing in the Sheaves at that time. And uh, the minister had just started to lay his blessings on the flock when, boom, the transmitter blew to hell and gone. Well, <laughs> the chief engineer ran in and hollered, who the hell's overloading the mics? Well, at that point, uh, the minister, you know, they, he was standing there holding a trombone. But the transmitter blew up, and that investigation later proved that what had happened was a mouse had taken up residence in the power supply. Now, he had apparently lived there for some time uh, unscathed. But one, this was happened to be a Sunday morning that it blew, as you can tell with the minister now. Apparently, after a bad Saturday night, this mouse got careless. And, you know, he'd been out drinking or something. And he quietly decided to take, uh, to take his ease uh, across what turned out to be uh, the, uh, the base, the bottom of the base of the 866s. Uh, you know, there's a hell of a potential there. And he found out. And uh, he went right up like, uh, you know, oh, boy. So you can run into these things if you don't uh, if you don't watch yourself. And I've been a fan of uh, electrical equipment 
for a long time. Now, I'm going to, if I may, <laughs> you know, it's, it's funny how you get involved in these things. Uh, what starts a guy out to become a stamp cuckoo? Very hard to know. Uh, the rest of us, we are never bitten by that bug. I have never been bitten by the stamp collecting bug. Incidentally, I've never even been sucked in by the S&H stamps and the green stamps. Uh, have you? <laughs> they keep giving me. You, know, you go through stores and the guy gives you all these stamps. And, and, and I wound up one time, I, I didn't want to embarrass the guy. You know, I bought something, he gave me the stamps. I said, what the hell, you have stamps? And he gave me these stamps. And, and uh, I was in a hurry and I stuck them in my coat pocket. Well, I had, you know, it was, it was my only good suit. And would you know it? I went out, and it was raining, and the next thing I know, my, my, my pocket is stuck together with S&H green stamps. Now, I guess my pocket is worth one and a half books. I suppose I could trade my coat in for a mix master or something, <laughs> some other useful object. But uh, nevertheless, I've never been involved in stamps. But one time, I was about, oh, I would say, well, I can tell you exactly what it was. I was in eighth grade. And uh, this is when I was bitten by the electrical bug, the electrical equipment bug. Now, it uh, it was kind of a uh, kind of a this is a somewhat sickening story because it has other overtones. I I, I want to warn you that you this you may find this story somewhat uh, in uh, somewhat bad taste. Not necessarily bad taste, but it may say things about the nature of man which you do not wish to accept. Uh, but I, I, as I have often said, I do not make the news. I only report it, friends. I, I, I would like to say that man is a uh, creature of peace. I would like to say that. I would like to say that man is not a carnivore. But the facts go against it. I mean, if you've ever been at the A&P on a Saturday night and watched them milling around that the steak canoder there where they're selling the London broil, you have no uh, doubts but what man is a carnivore. Uh, yeah? Why do you think there was such a furor over the meat prices? Only a carnivore could get mad at a, at a steak going for two seventy nine a pound. Vegetarians don't get mad. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you'll never find a horse getting mad that the price of bologna has gone up. No way. Because he stands around and he eats uh, weeds. The horse is a weed eater, which is not quite the same as a carnivore. He has different teeth, you know. You ever notice? Have you ever looked at a horse's teeth? Do you know that a horse has no pain in his teeth? Did you know that? I surprise you. You could knock a horse's tooth out, he doesn't know the difference. And what's more, uh, yeah, that's a, he's just not the same kind of teeth you have. Uh, no, you know, it's just like uh, you, you know, if uh, if you clip, uh, you know, the end of your, uh, if you, you know, you, you trim your fingernails, and it doesn't hurt. That's why with him, see? He's got these great big choppers out there, and you'd think that they'd be very painful. Oh, you know, he bites on a real tough weed. Oh, wow, my tooth. No way. Horse does not have, no way does he have uh, no toothaches in the horse world. I mean, it's a little incidental. You're not going to pick up this information in your casual radio show. You're just not. But uh, <laughs> they don't, don't. Well, oh, 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 wait, wait. Conversely, do not, uh, do not uh, assume then, since the horse eats weeds and does not get toothaches that he does not bite horse will bite you like billy be damned i uh now that he doesn't bite you to eat he just bites you because he's mean 
He just reaches out and grabs a hold of your biceps there, and the next thing you know, you ain't going to be throwing against the Packers next week. I can tell you that. <laughs> no. <laughs> but, uh, you know, but uh, I, I, uh, I was, you know, me and Schwartz and Flick one afternoon, uh, we discovered a, a great, great sport. And uh, how we discovered it. Now, have you ever had the secret? What, it's one of the great subversive pleasures. Uh, have you ever? Most adults don't do this, although I'm sure that some of them do. Uh, have you ever? I hate to use the word broken in, but have you ever gotten into an old deserted house? That is a great secret thrill, isn't it? <laughs> I'm telling you, that really is, and I I can't explain why. It is, and uh, very few poetry, much poetry has, has not much poetry has been written about this truly exquisite feeling. It is a, f a ecstasy, curious ecstasy, and it is. It's an ecstatic feeling, and uh, we we were out. Uh, we were on a Boy Scout thing. Remember when this happened, and uh, we were at this Boy Scout camp, which was out in the country, of course, and it was uh, in southern Michigan, and there were lakes around there, and it was in the fall. Now, uh, this Boy Scout camp was about the whole, must have been about four or five miles from the nearest regular town, and there was a, a road, you know, an old blacktop road went out to the Boy Scout camp, and the Boy Scout camp was on the shore of this little lake. Well, they used to give us like two hours in the afternoon when we didn't have to sit around tying sheep shank knots and uh, making uh, leather wallets and all that, you know, zingy stuff. We would have a couple of hours to ourselves. So Schwartz and Flick and Bruner and myself, all good members of Troop 41, the Moose Patrol, well, we're out, uh, you know, messing around out in the fields and just walking around out there. And it was great, you know, because it was out in this area, there were a lot of deserted farmhouses, which I'm sure do not exist anymore. But they were out there. It was deserted like, like a farmhouse was just sitting there deserted. Old, gray, old, rotten-looking house. And it was all half-fallen in. And uh, we, were, we were walking around in the fields. And there was a one particular place that had an old apple orchard in it. Now, the, uh, this apple orchard had grown up to weeds. It was heavy weeds, and these trees were kind of stunted because they, they obviously hadn't been taken care of for a long time. And there were a lot of little old rotten apples uh, laying under the trees. And we were messing around out in this apple orchard. And I remember the specific afternoon that this happened because we, we went through the apple orchard, and you could see this old gray farmhouse on the edge of the orchard there. Now, it was really weather-beaten and actually looked like it had half fallen in, really, but not quite. It was kind of sagging. The roof uh, was made of shingles, kind of sagged in the middle of those old wooden-type uh, gray shingles. And we're, we're messing around out in the weeds. And Schwartz says, let's go in the house. Well, now, most uh, grown-ups, you never lose this. The haunted house concept has haunted mankind since almost the very beginnings of man's sojourn on Earth. I'm sure that uh, Og and Charlie, the original cavemen, sitting there squatting down in their cave, began to discuss the mysterious cave down the lake that was reputedly 
inhabited by evil spirits. And that's where the haunted house concept began. The fear of the dark, a mysterious abode that is not occupied, and it looks like it vaguely at one time must have been. And I suspect this is part of the curious ecstasy that you get from going through a vacant old house. It is haunted by the ghosts of those who lived there before. And you see evidences of it. Pieces of paper, old newspaper on the floor, and always pieces of old paper on the floor. A ripped up magazine. There's usually a couple of broken cups. And you go from room to room, and there's a musty smell as you go, room to room, with a rising sense of discovery excitement and fear of approaching doom. <laughs> and that is an important part of it. Very important. So we, 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 we came out of this orchard and Schwartz says, let's go in a house. Well, there was a big sign on the front there that says, stay out. You know, that kind of stuff. Private property do not... Uh, uh, trespassers will be punished and all that stuff. See, well, you know, this uh, this says it, but the sign itself looked old and knocked down and beaten. Well, we walked around the house. It was a fairly good-sized house, as many old farmhouses are. It had a big porch running almost the entire length of the front, and the porch went around the side. I mean, it was one of those L-type porches, yeah. And we walked around the porch, and half of the stairs were gone. You saw, you know, the steps going up to the porch were all decayed and knocked down. And we walked around, completely around the house. Now, the upper story, there were two stories to this house. The upper story looked like it had been boarded up. There had been boards over the windows. The bottom story had shutters over the windows. It was these wooden shutters that were all boarded up. In other words, you could not look into the house, really. Uh, and it was gray and old, and there were tin cans on the porch and all that kind of stuff. So we walked around this house, and it was nothing for miles around this house. It was just a, a lot of old fields, and there was an old, completely uh, collapsed barn behind it. The barn had totally collapsed. Have you ever seen this barn just laying there flat? See, nothing but wood, wood, all whole pile of junk. So we walked around this thing about twice, and we came around the side again, and... On the side of the house, away from the orchard, was a slanting door that went down into what looked like the basement. Have you ever seen those slanting doors that come out? And we walked around this thing twice, and, and Schwartz says, let's try this door here. So we pulled on the thing, and it was only apparently behind the door. There was one of these little hooks and eye type things that was holding it shut. We pulled it up, and the eye gave away, and the damn thing opened. Now you got a choice. Well, you could smell that musty smell of, of, uh, of an ancient cellar coming up out of that opening. And Flick says, I'm going down into it. He says, come on, there's nobody here. So the three of us, one after the other, went down the steps 
and into this basement. And it was wild down in this basement. The basement was very low. I remember it was almost like it was was dug out of earth or something. It was low and it had cinder blocks all around, concrete blocks. But down in the basement, they didn't have any stove or fireplace or anything like this, but there was a pile of old boxes and, and tires and, and all kinds of papers and stuff. And, and uh, you could smell this must, and you could see the stairs off to the left going upstairs. Well, of course, the next thing you know, you go upstairs. And up we go, and it went into the kitchen. Couldn't believe it. This place, room after room, we went from the kitchen into the dining room. There was old furniture in it. It was actually filled with furniture. The people had apparently just moved out of this place, God knows how long before, and this old, musty furniture, the kind of stuff now that, that they're selling in uh, chic Third Avenue antique shops, you know, $400 for this rotten old chair. Well, this house was filled with that kind of stuff. And, you know, that old carved, heavy wood stuff. And so we went from room to room. You know, it was dark in there. No light could get in. And we went sneaking upstairs. And in the upstairs part, there were, there were the rooms upstairs, curiously enough, were almost empty. Apparently, they took the bed stuff. It was empty, empty. So Schwartz is digging around in one of the closets. He opened up the closet, and you can see this pile of old rags and uh, torn-up coats and stuff. And Schwartz says, hey, what's this? And on the floor of the closet was a wooden box, roughly the size, I would say, of two cigar boxes set one on top of the other. It was about 12 inches by eight inches, by about four inches, but it was of polished wood. It was kind of dirty and cruddy, but it was it was obviously shellacked wood, hard wood, and you could see with the little dovetail joints on the corners, and it had a little brass hook that opened the top, that had, the, had a hinged top. So Schwartz drags it, what's this real heavy, see? And it had what looked like a socket on the side, like a hole. There's a strange little hole, like a keyhole on the side of a thing. And Schwartz opens the thing up. It's a great-looking thing. It, was, it, it, it looked like about seven magnets. It was an electrical piece of electrical gear. had about six or seven iron magnets laid endwise over on the side, mounted down in there. And it was a little panel. And on the panel, there were, there were plugs. And folded up neatly, attached to the top, was a pair, what looked like a pair of uh, test prods, really. But the test prods had brass handles on the end. And there was a little, little, a little chart on there, and it said, for the cure, the treatment, and the electromagnetic therapy of the following diseases. It said the Qatar. <laughs> Great disease. Croup. It's this uh, white fever. Various wild, strange diseases. And it told how many cranks three times a day. And there was a little crank in this thing attached to the top. Schwartz takes it out, plugs the crank in, and starts to crank it. And it goes wow, 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 wow. Flick grabs the two handles, plugs them in, and he gets a shock. Gah! Fantastic shock. I said, let me try it. I grabbed the handle. Schwartz goes, ga, 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 ga. You get a shot. We ran out of the house with our fantastic find. And for 
from that minute on, we had a secret game we played. You know, kids develop secret games, and the secret game was to see who could take the most shocks out of the machine. Who could hold it the longest while the other kid cranked it? And we cranked it. <laughs> It got to the point where Schwartz and Flick and myself could stand. Well, you know, they tell you they tell you that the more drugs you take, the more you need, and the more you are immune to. It got to the point where Schwartz and Flick and I, after about three weeks of working with this machine, we could take a shot. We could, at that time, believe it or not, I could take a shock right out of the 110, off the right out of the uh, house. Just stick my fingers in there. How's that for a rare talent? We played with this thing for, oh, maybe six or seven weeks. And Schwartz kept it at his house. And then we stopped doing it. I have no idea where that electromagnetic therapy device, the cure crew, can you imagine what that would get on, a, on an antique sale today? No, I, but from that minute on, old electrical equipment intrigued me. I love it. If any of you have got, by the way, if any of you have an old radio up in your attic that you don't know what to do with, let me know about it. I'll give it a good home. Just drop a note to me here. Yeah, I'd love to see it. You know? And I can still take a shot. Well, of course, being in this business, you have to be able to take all kinds of shocks. No question about it. I'm immune to it all. W.O.R. New York. This is Carlton Frederick's State.